Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. how many people have no idea that the federal government did an investigation into this case. And just the fact that the federal government did do an investigation into this case is very telling because there can only be two outcomes from that. The first outcome is the federal government did an investigation. They found that no crime occurred. No crime occurred in the case of victim number two, the shower incident, which was the conclusion of the federal agent looking into Graham Spanier or this federal agent is incompetent and gave a government clearance to a pedophile enabler. So either way, the media should be all over this story, whichever narrative they want to pick, but nobody will freaking touch it. It's just, it's just amazing. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to Felony Friday, which is a weekly show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday focuses each and every week on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. This is the 76th episode of Felony Friday, so that means you'll be able to find the show notes with links and notes to everything that we're going to talk about, and it's a lot of different stuff, and I reference a lot of previous podcasts, and you can find all that stuff at lionsofliberty.com slash FF76. Before we get started with today's show, I do want to tell you guys about a new sponsor that I'm very excited that we have here at Lions of Liberty. And the reason I'm excited about this new sponsor is because they sell a product that absolutely everybody should have. The product that I'm talking about is firearms, and the sponsor is Martin Armory at martinarmory.com. Now, Martin Armory was founded with the simple goal of making buying a gun simple and affordable. Now, instead of carrying thousands of different types of guns, MartinArmory.com only carries 25 different models. Now, by doing this, by using this unique business model, they are able to offer guns at ridiculous prices. Now, I might be buying a gun myself from Martin Armory. I've been eyeing one up. I've been looking at a Sig Sauer P229 40 Smith & Wesson, and I have the... P226 40 Smith & Wesson SIG already. I have that for home defense. So I love that gun. And the P229 is a little bit smaller. And I'm thinking it might be something I need to pick up for concealed carry. So go to martinarmory.com. Check out all the guns they have for sale. The pricing is spectacular. It is so inexpensive. And when you pick out a gun that you like, make sure when you're checking out to use promo code LIONS at checkout to get free shipping. So that's martinarmory.com, and the promo code is LIONS at checkout. Just one more quick note before we get started, guys. This podcast is focused on the Penn State Jerry Sandusky scandal. Now, if you haven't heard my previous podcast, previous interviews that I've had on this topic, then I'm going to highly encourage you to go back and listen to those. You can listen to this show first, 
but just know that we don't get into the details of the case. If you want to get into the real details of the case and sink your teeth into the evidence that makes me really question this case and question the media narrative that everyone accepts as fact today, you want to go back and listen to those episodes to get a full understanding. And those episodes are uh, episode 8, 11, 31, and 47. Now, I will link to all of those on the show notes page, but just know we do not go into extensive detail during this podcast. Okay, on with the show. My guest today is Ralph Cipriano. Ralph has had a unique career as a journalist throughout his career. He's never shied away from controversy, and that is no different than the two cases we'll be discussing today. Uh, Some of Ralph's background, he received an undergrad degree in journalism at the University of Missouri. He is a former staff writer for the Los Angeles Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Now Ralph writes for BigTrial.net and his coverage of the Archdiocese uh, sex abuse trial was first brought to my attention by uh, former guest of this show, John Ziegler. And Ralph, I think, noticed some similarities between this case in Philadelphia and the Penn State sex abuse scandal, which I've talked about several times on this show, of course, with John Ziegler and with Mark Pendergrass. So I've had some recommendations to to bring Ralph onto this show to talk through both the Penn State scandal and the similarities between Penn State and the Philadelphia Catholic Church sex abuse trial. So Ralph, welcome to Felony Friday. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here, Ralph. Before we get started talking about these cases, that's going to be the majority of the show, I just want to ask you what what I think is an easy question. What first motivated you to pursue a career as a journalist? Mm, Wow. Uh, Let's see. I thought about being an English English major, but uh, most of those guys were unemployed. And I always liked to write. And journalism uh, fascinated me. And at the time, it was the time of uh, Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men. And uh, fortunately, I was in journalism school before everybody went out and decided they wanted to be a reporter. But it was just something I fell in love with. It's something that you can have an impact with, the way to communicate with people. Um, I've always loved it. So let's let's get started talking about we'll start off talking about Philadelphia case the archdiocese sex abuse trial and you know as I said I've had a lot of requests to bring you on the show from Penn State people who have you know first read about when you started writing about the Penn State case which which was actually after this Philadelphia sex abuse trial that happened initially first so there's a lot of similarities between these cases um Back when this verdict was read in this Philadelphia Catholic Church sex abuse trial, this was back in 2013. At the time it was read, you boldly stated that two innocent men had been sentenced to jail time. And since that time, one of them, the the Catholic priest, has passed away in prison. And the other one, I think recently, had had a court date, so maybe we can talk about that too, the hopes of an appeal there. And I'm not super familiar with this trial. I've read some of your work, but you've written a lot about it, like very extensively. There's a ton of articles if you go back to bigtrial.net to read about it. So can you just give my listeners who might not be as familiar with this case, because probably like me, when they saw this headline, Catholic priest accused of 
sexually assaulting an altar boy, they thought, oh, yeah, of course, that's what Catholic priests do, and just didn't look into it. So can you just give us a little overview and explain why you believe that both of these men are, in fact, innocent? Sure. Uh, first off, I'll uh, cop a plea here and admit I thought exactly what you thought, that all these guys were guilty. There, we had two sex abuse trials in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. We had one altar boy come forward and claim that way back in 1998, 1999, when he was 10 and 11 years old, a fifth and sixth grader at St. Jerome's Parish in Northeast Philadelphia, that he had been viciously raped by three different assailants who sort of passed him around like the proverbial uh, pinata. And uh, this helpless altar boy was, you know, the victim of these terrible crimes. And I went in there, and then on top of the three assailants, they jammed up uh, Monsignor uh, William J. Lynn, the secretary for clergy for the archdiocese, and the guy who was supposedly, you know, riding herd on these abusive priests. And he became the first Catholic administrator in the country to go to jail for, uh, you know, moving these guys around from parish to parish and not putting them away. He was charged with endangering the welfare of a child. So when I sat in on both trials, you know, I, I, I was ready to hang them high. Uh, and um, uh, a defense lawyer whispered something in my ear, He said, and it's come back to haunt me. He said, I know you're not going to believe this. He said, but the kid's a fake, and everything he's saying is made up. And I started to listen to the altar boy and his story, and his story is just not only impossible on the face of it, he claims that, you know, he was viciously assaulted by three different assailants. And he, this is a kid, you know, usually in these church cases, we have grooming patterns. These predators spend months and years grooming not only the victim, but the family to get them to trust them before they strike. There's no grooming in any of these uh, the Billy Doe stories. He's the altar boy. That's a pseudonym. His real name is Danny Gallagher. And uh, he, there was no grooming in any of this. And the stories were, changed so radically. I mean, he gave one crazy set of stories where, you know, he's, oh, this is crazy stuff. But it, it, his first story is that uh, one of the priests, Father Engelhart, the guy who, poor guy who died in jail, um, grabs Danny after the 6.15 a.m. mass, locks the sacristy doors, five doors to the sacristy, one of which leads to the only bathroom in this tiny little church. And Danny Gallagher's story is that for five hours, the Padre is, uh, you know, viciously assaulting him, uh, five hours of anal sex. And then, he, you know, he's beating the kid up and he's threatening his life. And, you know, anybody who's a Catholic and... I'm one in poor standing, uh, a dropout, but anybody knows that, you know, there's a, the 615 mass lasts like 25 minutes and then they have another mass and, you know, and then another mass after that. So his story is insane on the face of it, but he, he's a ridiculous witness because not only is his story impossible, but, um, he changed it dramatically. In other words, all those details I just told you, all those were dropped from his original story and he came up with a, a completely different story. So, you know, there's just a million reasons not to believe this kid, and I could talk all day on the subject. 
Ralph, did did the defense when they had Billy Doe on the stand, you know, did did they question him on the changing of the stories? What what happened there? Well, there were two trials. In the first trial, he wasn't questioned because Monsignor Lynn was the administrator on trial, and the defense lawyers figured, well, our position is we didn't even, you know, our defendant didn't even never even met this kid. So what's the sense of cross-examining him? They did think about it because his stories changed so dramatically. But the trial judge was out to hang them high, and she basically said, you know, uh, if you do it, I'm going to let them drag in the priest who allegedly raped poor Danny Gallagher, and he's a guy who just cut a deal, and he'll be wearing a jumpsuit, and that'll prejudice the jury. But if you cross him, that's what I'm going to do to you. So they eventually punked out on that. At the second trial, they did cross the guy, but it wasn't very effective. There was so much more material, as even the prosecutor admitted to me with a big smile on his face. Uh, and, uh, and But there was still enough reasonable doubt in the second case uh, where he, the Englehart and Bernie Shero, the school teacher in jail, should have been acquitted. But it was a crazy verdict that none of us in the courtroom understood. None of the reporters could understand the verdict. The judge was shocked by it. But the moral of the story is that three priests and the school teacher all wound up in jail because of Danny Gallagher. So you you said there was a uh, another priest that that was accused. Yeah, the, we we have two priests. The assailants in this case are two priests. And uh, then the third one is a Catholic school teacher, and then Monsignor Lynn also goes to jail because he didn't control the one of the pedophile priests who allegedly raped Mr. Gallagher. And there was just just the one victim. There were no other victims that ever came forward. Well, uh, in that same grand jury report, which came out the same year you guys had your grand jury report in Penn State, there was another uh, victim that came forward. In his case, it's uh, almost as ridiculous as this one. But it's interesting what happened in the Philadelphia grand jury reports, the same thing that happens in the Penn State grand jury report. It's built around an anal rape that never happened. And, you know, it's the shock value of that. That's what I, I initially found very disturbing. Both grand jury reports in Philadelphia and Penn State are, uh, you know, filled with errors and um, the prosecutors just overreached. And in the Penn State case, uh, Mike McQuarrie, who had communicated that story to the prosecution during his grand jury testimony, said that he never said that. So, I, right. Who the knows? Who knows where that? Who knows email. where that was entered in? Where it came from? Well, I know. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure it out. In Philadelphia, it was some ambitious prosecutor rewriting uh, the facts to come out with a story that the gullible media would run with, and it succeeded. Ralph, at at what point in time in the Penn State case did you start to say, hey, wait a minute here, I'm seeing some similarities. This is this is all too familiar. Uh, this, you know, I think maybe, maybe Jerry Sandusky could, at, at the very least, um, deserve a new trial and, and possibly even be innocent. Was there anything that, that triggered that in your mind when you started to notice a similarity? Yeah. Um, first of all, you have unscrupulous prosecutors who are willing to make charges that are unfounded by their own 
grand jury investigation. I mean, Mike McQuarrie didn't say he witnessed an anal rape, and he let the the prosecutors know very shortly after the grand jury report came out when he emailed them and said, you've twisted my words. I never saw a penetration. So there you have it from the source that the prosecutors, you know, uh, weren't playing fair there. But I guess what upset me, the dishonest, the similar dishonesty, but also, you know, just the complete failure of the news media to do any critical thinking and sifting through this case. I mean, it just seems like a massive stage of, you know, massive case of hysteria and the media didn't do its job. They just, once again, like what happened in Philadelphia, they just joined up with the prosecution team and did their public relations work for them. And in the Penn state case, you know, the main reporter that I've been reading about, I don't know her personally, Sarah Gannon, you know, she was working the moms in the case and actively aiding the prosecution. And the prosecution has basically uh, agreed to that in a, in, a, in a couple of stipulations at a couple of different trials that that happened. So, you know, you just wonder what's going on with all that. Yeah, and, and she was tipped uh, well before the uh, the big right. grand jury leak. She was tipped beforehand of the grand jury investigation going on, correct? Yes, and that's what happened in the Archdiocese case. And, and this is what frequently happens in our little media market in Philadelphia, where the prosecutors are very cozy with the Inquirer, the paper of record, and they leak out their case before it ever you know, goes to trial. And the newspaper runs with it, and they convict these people in the public forum before you know, they ever start the trial. It's a bad situation. Yeah, and, and one thing I just want to remind my listeners again, if this is your, your first time listening to the show, or if you haven't looked into the, the Penn State case or the Archdiocese case in Philadelphia, and you're just thinking, what the hell's wrong with these two guys? They're supporting pedophiles, pedophile enablers. Please go back and look into these cases for yourself. Go read Ralph's work at bigtrial.net. You can go back on this podcast and listen to the three times I had John Ziegler on, episode 8, 11, and 31. You can listen to the episode I had Mark Pendergrass on, episode 47. And, and, and judge for yourself. I mean, the evidence the evidence there, the evidence that this stuff didn't happen is, is all right in front of us. And what, one of the most amazing things, so, so many incredible things about, about this Penn State case, but one thing that I keep coming back to, and I just can't understand how the how nobody else in the media other than yourself and John Ziegler and a handful of other people calling this out is just insane but you've written about a couple times at bigtrial.net about federal agent the federal agent Sneeden who investigated Graham Spanier who was tasked by the federal government to investigate him and ensure that he was that he should still have the he had a very high level of federal clearance and he was fully investigated the case. And this was some overlap, I think, between the time when, when Louis Free, the former uh, head of the FBI, was investigating the, the uh, case for the Board of Trustees at Penn State. There's a little overlap in that. But none of the federal government's report got into ex-FBI director Louis Free's report. And it's amazing how many people have no idea that the federal government did an investigation into this case. And just the fact that the federal government did do an investigation into this case is very telling because it can only it can only, it can only be two outcomes from that. 
The first outcome is the federal government did an investigation. They found that no crime occurred. No crime occurred in the case of victim number two, the shower incident, which was the conclusion of the federal agent looking into Graham Spanier. Or this federal agent is incompetent and gave a government clearance to a pedophile enabler. So either way, the media should be all over this story, whichever narrative they want to pick, but nobody will freaking touch it. It's just it's just amazing. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. How How is that possible? Well, if you've seen the Philadelphia media in action during the, um, you know, the sex abuse scandal at the Archdiocese, you'd understand it. Basically, there's little independent thought in the media once the storyline gets set. You know, it's like uh, it came down from Mount Sinai and nobody can challenge it. And so it's a, it's a group think problem. Reporters all think alike. And there's not a lot of deep thinkers in the crowd. And in the case of John Snedden, the guy who, the federal agent who investigated uh, Graham Spanier's clearance, here you have a former NCIS special agent, a cold case specialist. And he was very helpful to me. And just going back, you know, he always says you start from minute one and see if you have a crime. Well, in this case, Stedden determined that not only was there no crime, the, the sex, you know, the alleged sex incident in the shower, but there was no cover up. So he blows the whole thing up and he asked a lot of logical questions. And he also, you know, asked, he, he also correctly pointed out how the entire narrative was driven in the prosecution among the politicians and uh, in the media by hysteria. We're going to take a real quick commercial break to hear from our awesome sponsor for today's show. I firmly believe one of the most important things you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones is to own a firearm. But for a lot of people, buying a gun can be an overwhelming process. There are just so many options and not everyone feels comfortable walking into a gun store. Well, our friends at martinarmory.com are doing their part to change that. Martin Armory was founded with a simple goal to make buying a gun simple and affordable. Instead of carrying thousands of different guns, martinarmory.com only carries 25. This allows them to focus on providing the most popular guns on the market at insanely cheap prices. And now for a limited time, their prices are even more insane as martinarmory.com is offering Lions of Liberty listeners free shipping. Simply go to martinarmory.com, pick an awesome gun, and enter the promo code LIONS. Again, that's martinarmory.com. The promo code is LIONS. In your opinion, because during the uh, the Graham Spanier trial, of course, ahead of time, Tim Curley and Gary Schultz, who were supposed to be his co-defendants, they, they put in a, a guilty plea down to a misdemeanor. Graham Spanier still went on trial and ultimately ended up um, getting convicted of, of a misdemeanor, and they've been sentenced, and we can talk about that later. But I, I want to I talk about uh, John Sneedon, and he was supposed to be a potential witness, a potential, a potential star witness for, for the defense to come come on and essentially say what you just said, that a crime didn't occur and there was no cover-up, and the defense didn't call him. The defense actually didn't put up a defense for Graham Spanier. His lawyers didn't. So why why would that happen? Well, you know, you're going into a hostile county. I mean, uh, all of the opinion polls that the defense lawyers took showed that the saturation media coverage had completely tainted the jury pool, and 60 to 70 percent 
of everybody, um, you know, in, in the uh, Dauphin County and the surrounding counties believe that these guys were guilty. And not only that, but they should be punished regardless of whether they actually broke the law because, you know, they've been convicted in the media. So you're going in front of a hanging judge. You, you've got, you know, a tainted jury pool. You're in trouble. <laughs> you're in a lot of trouble. And I guess, you know, some lawyers would have fought their way out. You know, you shoot your way out and you go down swinging and you put John Snedden on the stand and you rip that pathetic victim that they wheeled in there. Victim number five, you could have torn him apart. And, you know, maybe you get somebody, all you need is one guy on the jury or a gal to say, you know, gee, I don't know if this is true. And boom, you know, Graham walks out the door there and he's acquitted. But I think the fear was so great and they think they have the case won on appeal. That's the game they're playing. But I mean, these those defense lawyers were so traumatized, they didn't even ask one question of victim number five, who's trying to put Graham Spanier in jail. And I got to tell you, I was in the courtroom when uh, they brought Graham, uh, when they brought victim number five in. And I have never seen anything like the show that happened. Can, can you explain the, the show, what the, what the judge directed the, the people because the judge gave out some directives and there were there was extra, extra security in the courtroom correct it's ridiculous first of all and we got to start at ground zero first of all the media in any contested trial if they're going to grant one side anonymity and hang the defendants out to dry right there you've got a tilted playing field you've rigged the contest you know victim number five <laughs> You know, he's, he's a victim. He's already, the court has already dubbed him a victim. You know, it's, it's prejudicial on the face of it. But in Philadelphia, when we had our sex abuse trials, you know, when Billy Doe, the altar boy, came to court, he was identified as Danny Gallagher. The jury knew his real name. It was the press in an act of self-censorship that started calling him Billy Doe. They didn't have to do it. And I think it's totally misguided what they did. But let's flip over to Penn State. Here we have the, uh, you know, the inmates running the asylum. Uh, when victim number five is sworn in, they swore him in in the judge's chambers, which is unusual for the start of it. Then when he came out, the judge introduced victim number five to the jury. I guess they call him victim number five in the Sandusky case, but in the Spaniard case, they called him John Doe. And, he, and the judge instructed the lawyers that they had to call this guy John Doe. Now, if this kid is a sobbing 10-year-old, you know, who just got raped, that makes sense. But it sure as hell doesn't make sense with a 28-year-old who may be a scam artist who's going up there. And, you know, the jury wasn't So, first of all, you've got the identity problem. They don't give, ask his real name. Secondly, he's identified by the prosecution as a quote-unquote victim of sex abuse by Jerry Sandusky. The jury was never told what the alleged act was. And we all know what the act was. It was uh, Jerry allegedly soaked this kid up in the shower and they had touched his privates. For that, the sobbing sex abuse victim got $8 million in a civil settlement. Now, half the guys in my neighborhood would take that deal. It's just so, you know, but you've got the judge buying in. He's calling him John Doe. Right away, it gets the imprimatur of, you know, the judge. I mean, that's a powerful thing in terms of a jury. And then secondly, you've got extra security, extra deputies patrolling the courtroom 
you know, looking for conspiracy bloggers, as the prosecutors called them, who might want to snap a cell phone picture of this kid. And you know, right there, you're signaling to the jury that this guy's special. He's getting VIP treatment. We can't even tell you his name, but oh God, we believe his story. What the hell is the jury going to make of that show? Yeah, it's bringing a, bringing a little bias into the courtroom. I, I would say that's not necessarily a, a fair presentation of of the facts. Definitely some. No, it's not. And the, for the fact, the fact that the defense was too cowed to even ask this guy a question. This victim number five, you know, his name is Michael Kajak. From what I am told, he gave four different dates for this alleged shower soaked up in the shower incident, and they kept moving the date because they had to get it past. Aquarius shower incident, so they could then tell the jury, oh, you know, if they hadn't covered up the shower incident, then McQuarrie saw why this poor victim number five, you know, why he'd still have his innocence. And that's the story they're telling. Yeah, it, it, really amazing. It really made me sick. Just manufacturing the case. Um, there's really no yeah. other way to put it. One thing I did want to talk about it, you've yeah. published several excerpts um, on bigtrial.net. Uh, quoting Mark Pendergrass upcoming book. And like I said, previously I did have Mark on the show and he talked about in detail about the discredited repressed memory theory. And there were several, uh, several victims in this case, which who Mark talked about and who you've uh, in your excerpts have been highlighted on bigtrial.net. But out of these, uh, out of these couple victims, I mean, which ones are are the least the least believable? Which ones raise a raise a red flag? All of them raise a red flag. All thirty three that they settled with raised a red flag. And you know, again, I wouldn't have thought this until I went through the Billy Doe Alter case, Alter Boy case. But in that case, Billy Doe, Danny Gallagher, the alleged victim of three rapes, was revealed to be a complete fraud. And not only did his medical records prove that none of his alleged injuries happened, every witness they interviewed contradicted every aspect of the story. He changed his story like five times. Uh, but beyond all that, at the end of this whole thing we've gone through with Billy Dell in Philadelphia, which completely parallels the Penn State experience. Don't forget, we got the grand jury report coming out in 2011, and then we're still to this day talking about this stuff. The lead detective for the district attorney's office, the lead detective, the DA's top, you know, own lead guy came out and in a 12 page affidavit filed in court said this kid's basically a complete fraud. He's a liar. I caught him in a bunch of lies myself. The kid admitted to me that he just made stuff up, quote unquote, and immediately told the policy about it and the fact that this guy wasn't credible she replied you're killing my case so it's very unusual when you have the lead investigator for the prosecutors the district attorney's office coming forward and say it's all fraud and not all these guys are innocent nobody should have gone to jail how did that end up coming out that bit about the lead detective saying that because obviously that i'm sure that didn't come out at the time of the trial no, but it came out subsequent to the trial when they're trying to get the school teacher who's doing eight to 16 years in jail, they're trying to get him a new trial. And so, you know, this is a powerful tool to have in your 
uh, you know, toolkit here, but also they're trying to decide whether they should retry my senior Lynn, whose conviction on endangering the welfare of a child has been overturned twice. So not only is this guy a certified fraud by the psychiatrists who've interviewed him, there's two forensic psychiatrists who've gone over everything with this guy. His medical records disprove his story. There's a million lies he's told, and the, now the lead prosecutor, the lead detective is saying he's a fraud. Well, this fraud collected $5 million from the Archdiocese of Philadelphia in a civil suit. And I want to say to everybody who says, can all these victims be lying? Yes, they can. And, um, you know, all of their stories are extremely suspect. But here's the bottom line, okay? Do I know whether they're guilty or innocent? No. However, I do know that if you're going to put in a claim for cash and you're a trustee of the Penn State University and you're about to pass out $93 million, almost $3 million apiece to 30 of these freaking guys, you should ask some questions before you pass out that money. That's your fiduciary responsibility, I believe, is how the accountants put it and the lawyers too. And we know that they passed out this money without subjecting any of these guys to a deposition or a psychiatric evaluation by a forensic psychiatrist. They didn't even ask these guys anything. They just wrote them out a check. And we know who figured out who got what? The plaintiff's lawyers. So right away, we've got a problem here. Yeah, I'm not sure if you saw this, but a couple days ago, I know Ziegler posted this on Facebook, that one of the... One of these yeah. uh, claimants, Penn State claimants, who I think got like $2.8 million, is suing his lawyer for not getting him more money and claiming his lawyer plied him with alcohol. And this this guy has a really yeah. long rap sheet. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we're dealing with. And, and, you know, just everybody, everybody knew that the hunt was on in Penn State for victims. I mean, in Philadelphia, we have something we call the SEPTA bus crash and basically a bus with three people on it crashes. And then when the lawyers get through 20 people put in claims uh, to be paid. And, you know, I do wonder when Penn state was passed out that 93 million, whether that wasn't the happy Valley version of the SEPTA bus crash. Yeah. Well, a lot of people would, uh, to play devil's advocate, would come back to that and say, well, even for money, people surely wouldn't, they wouldn't want it out there that they were sexually abused. And I, I mean, and you I don't can, have to put it out. You don't have to put it out. These people didn't even have to give their real names. We're still talking about victim number five, victim number two, whatever. I don't know. I, like I said, Billy Doe, $5 million, certified fraud. So, you know, does this happen? I know it happens. Did it happen at Penn State? I don't know that. But the trustees should have done some investigation before they passed out that money. So what's to go back to the uh, the archdiocese trial for a minute? What what's the status there right now? I know there's something going on right now with an appeal. Is what's what's going? What's the status? Well, um, Monsignor Lynn, uh, the administrator in the case, who supposedly wasn't you know riding herd on the abuse of priests, his conviction has been overturned twice, and the DA, of course, Seth Williams, Rufus Seth Williams, our wonderful DA who himself is facing a 29-count federal corruption indictment, insists on retrying this case. So they both sides, however, are 
appealing the pretrial rulings of the new judge in the case. So it'll probably be a year before that all gets sorted out. Hopefully we'll have a new district attorney who realized that, you know, this case was a bunch of BS anyway. And the fact that the Monsignor has served 33 out of 36 months of his uh, minimum sentence, plus 18 months of house arrest, any sane person uh, would cancel the retrial, but we have a district attorney who has proved that, you know, he's a corrupt guy who will do anything. And that's where we're at here. In, uh, in, in one of your articles on, on the archdiocese case, and I know that this parallels exactly the, the Penn State case. You talked about how there's there's a, there was a long list of different groups who were responsible for the setting up the environment that allowed this to happen, that allowed someone like Billy Doe to make up stories, put innocent people in prison, and then get, I think you said, $5 million dollars. One of the groups you talked about is, I think, is a little controversial. A lot of people probably got upset by it, is victim advocates who come in during the trial and are, are very vocal um, supporting the victims, which, of course, I think victim, true victims of sexual abuse should be supported. I'm not saying that, but can you please explain why that is, why you believe that is, and how that contributes to this environment that allows people like Billy Doe to create a story like this and get away with it? Well, it always starts with, you know, an impulse to do something right. I mean, we had horrible stuff happen in Philadelphia. We had horrible sex abuse crimes committed. We had 169 priests in our archdiocese who went out and raped and molested hundreds of innocent children. And none of them, because the bishops were so good at running a cover-up, none of them could be charged for it. So every person in Philadelphia who knows the story is rightfully angry at the Catholic Church. And you're right. I mean, I've heard real victims of sex abuse talk, and you end up crying when you hear their stories because they're just horrible. However, the victims' advocates, in my opinion, certainly in Philadelphia, the SNAP people, uh, they, they were very irresponsible in terms of what they said and what they did. They were always throwing bombs. And since the leadership of that organization has resigned, and we find out because <laughs> one of their former officials apparently turned over their computer files to uh, some priests who were suing SNAP. But, you know, this, the leadership of SNAP was in bed with the trial lawyers, and uh, they were all working together. And uh, the trial lawyers were making contributions to SNAP. And so, you know, they've been irresponsible. Possibly they're corrupt. The lawsuits will might be able to figure that out. But beyond that, they, they contribute to a lynch mom mentality that goes on at these cases. And, you know, whatever happened in the past, you've got somebody else on trial. They deserve a fair trial. And these folks are once again tilting the playing field, which I think is totally tilted enough because everybody assumes, like you said, and I agreed with you that I felt the same way at the beginning of the Archdiocese sex abuse trials. We all assume that every Catholic priest is guilty. So I, I guess going forward, and I, I know there's no easy solution, there's no easy way to prevent things like this from happening. You know, there's a lot of problems with our criminal justice system. But if, if you could just give maybe one or two things that you think as a society 
we could change in order to have a little check back on situations like this so innocent people can't just be railroaded into prison. I mean, in the Penn State case, you have four, you have uh, Sandusky, who I think he, his trial was seven months after after the grand jury report dropped, not even enough time to to, uh, to prepare. And you've written about on your, on uh, bigtrial.net about his lawyer, Joe Amendola's just horrendous defense. And then you have Joe Paterno, who was who was railroaded into this by the uh, by the board of trustees, and just this uh, this this culture of this media hysteria, just jumping on a narrative and just driving it into the ground, and then not even going back to investigate it. Is there anything that that my listeners can do that that we can do as a as activists to try to change this uh, really cancer in our society? Wow, well that's a tall. That's a big question. Uh, I, I would just say we could. The only thing that the general public can do is somehow bring the media to task for their failures. I mean, for instance, in the Billy Doe case, okay. I mean, once <laughs> once the lead investigator, the lead detective for the DA's office, came forward and they filed his affidavit in court saying this whole thing's a fraud. The kid's a liar. And I told the prosecutor, and, and she basically said, you're killing my case. You would think that that would be a big story in our town, wouldn't you? But they didn't do it. The Inquirer didn't touch it. Rolling Stone, which ran a long Billy Doe gut rate story, they didn't touch it either. They pretend it doesn't exist. And that kind of irresponsibility, it, it, there has to be some penalty for it. It has to be addressed. And the the media has not gone back in and said, "Wow, maybe we got the Penn State case wrong." They've all they've done is regurgitating the regurgitated their talking points. I mean, and and that's irresponsible. For instance, when it came out about John Snedden, the uh, former NCIS agent, special agent, doing a report that contradicted Louis Free's uh, findings, the only people I know that wrote about it. Or me and Ziegler. I don't know anybody else who did, and that's irresponsible. So, <laughs> they somehow the media has to be held accountable, and you know, I guess the bloggers, like you know, Ziegler and myself, shouldn't be classified as kooks. I mean, it's just um, we're basically when I went to journalism school, we were taught that you hold everyone accountable, and you don't play favorites. And so, therefore, instead of joining up with the prosecution. The media is supposed to be a watchdog instead of a lapdog, and they're certainly not supposed to work on the behalf of the prosecution. And we've totally lost that here. And as consumers of news, which we all are, we need to be aware of, you know, those distinctions. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said when I posed the question, there, there's no easy answers. Um, but it, it just, just continually blows my mind when you see – just black and white situations, and I'll, I'll I'll go back to the the uh, federal agent who investigated this case, case John Sneeden, yeah. who who has called out and said this crime did not happen, it didn't happen, yep. and there was no cover up, and yet nobody will talk about it. And I mean, I've I've uh, you know people who have written articles about this and in, in the Pittsburgh media and, and and around Western Pennsylvania, I've. I've emailed them that, you know, your uh, your column on it, John Ziegler's work on it, and crickets, no response. I mean, they're probably just sending my emails right to the uh, trash bin. 
But it's it just it's amazing. It's amazing that they can just ignore just ignore what doesn't fit into their narrow narrative. Uh, and I've seen it over and over again. Um, they want everybody to think that you know they they don't make any mistakes. And in the old days, in the 1970s, when I was coming out of journalism school, most newspapers had an ombudsman, somebody uh, who was uh, you know usually a veteran journalist who was supposed to investigate readers' complaints, usually about bias, you, you, the things that we've been talking about today. And then the ombudsman would write a column and, and you know call his own paper out if he had to. And it was done often. Uh, usually most of those guys were homers, but at least issues got it examined. And occasionally, you know, the media was criticized, uh, self-criticism, but it was criticized. That doesn't exist anymore. They're, I can't think of a you know, newspaper that I know of where they have somebody who fulfilling that role. So I guess they're like the Vatican used to be, you know, they, they just don't make mistakes. Yeah, you almost need, I mean, you don't want the government controlling the media. That would, that would be messy. You, you need an independent uh, party to, to rise to prominence, to hold the media accountable that people can trust, that can prove over time that they are a trustworthy source and, uh, people go to them to check on articles, and I'm not talking about Snoops, which is highly politicized, but so- something like that. I, I don't know how else uh, th- this can be solved. So maybe, maybe you and John Ziegler can go and start that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've already done enough stupid things, so we can volunteer for one more. But uh, yeah, it's it's a huge problem, and. I'm amazed that nobody, that not every paper in the country didn't do a John Snowden story. Everyone should have written that story and said, oh, my God, there's a federal agent who contradicts the entire Penn State storyline. He says there's no sex crime and no cover up. And either he's a lunatic or, wow, do we have something we need to start talking about? Yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy. And, Ralph, unfortunately, we're, we're out of time. Uh, we could talk about both of these cases probably more extensively and. And I want to encourage all of my listeners to go and read, read about all these cases on uh, bigtrial.net, read the extensive amount of research and and really journalistic work that Ralph has, has put into this case and also into the Penn State case. So thanks for coming on the show, Ralph. I just want to give my you the pleasure. chance. Can you just let my audience know maybe anywhere else other than bigtrial.net where they can find your work, how they can follow you on social media and feel free to, to plug anything else that you're working on. Well, sadly, bigtrial.net is it. Uh, I've been approached about uh, working on a uh, documentary about uh, what happened in Penn state and the archdiocese. I do hope that that comes to fruition, but I'll, I'll keep you all up to date if, if that flies. But right now it's bigtrial.net and I've done some stuff for Newsweek. Uh, the altar boy, I wrote a cover story on him, uh, the lying, scheming altar boy. Anybody could find it by Googling it. But that's it. Okay, well, we will uh, we'll link to that Newsweek story on the show notes page. We'll link to BigTrial.net. And I just want to thank you once again, Ralph, for, uh, for all the work you're doing to actually you know look into these cases and question the unquestionable media narrative. <laughs> thank you, John. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's show, guys. I'm not going to keep you long. I don't have a lot to add. We talked about a lot of different things today. And I just want to recommend, like I've said throughout this show, if you have questions about this, if you haven't yet gone down the rabbit hole and really investigated 
this Penn State case and also the uh, Archdiocese case in Philadelphia, I really want to encourage you to do that. You might be questioning why I've dedicated several episodes to this Penn State case. It's because I believe that there is a massive injustice that is taking place here. And it's okay if you don't believe that. But if you don't believe that and you haven't done the research yourself, then I hate to say it, you're just a sheep. You're just listening to whatever the heck the media tells you. And the media is 100% wrong on this case. Go back and find out for yourself. Prove me wrong. Go back and listen to episode number 8, episode number 11, and episode number 31 with John Ziegler. Listen to episode number 47 with Mark Pendergrast. And go to bigtrial.net and read all the work that Ralph Cipriano has put into both this Penn State case and the Philadelphia Archdiocese case. There's a huge show coming Monday, guys. It is episode number 300 for Mark Clare. Mark Clare started this Lions of Liberty podcast, and he still holds that he still holds that Monday time slot to himself. That is the OG Lions of Liberty podcast, as we call it. And this upcoming Monday, it is Mark's 300th show on Lions of Liberty. So he's having a uh, a big show for it. It's a big deal, and he's bringing two special guests on the show. Jason Stapleton and Larry Sharp to talk about the future of the Liberty Movement, the future of the Libertarian Party, and everything in between. It's a phenomenal discussion, and you guys don't want to miss it. So I want to encourage you to subscribe to the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or however you get your podcasts. I don't care how you get them, but please just subscribe. You want this thing to be automatically downloaded in your podcast catcher so you can just listen to it first thing Monday morning. If you haven't subscribed, you have. if you haven't joined the Lions of Liberty forum yet, please do so. Why haven't you? You're missing out. There's great discussions Great arguments, really interesting topics that we're talking about every single day in the Lions of Liberty Forum. Please check out the Lions of Liberty store. You can find that at lionsofliberty.store. We have t-shirts, men's, women's t-shirts, long sleeve, short sleeve. Actually, just put a, uh, we have posters now available for sale in the Lions of Liberty store. And Mark on Monday during that show is going to be talking about a very special deal that we're going to be offering for patrons of the Lions of Liberty store. And lastly, guys, another way and the most consistent way to support this show so we can make it grow and we can take the message of liberty to the streets is to join the Lions Pride and become a regular monthly contributor to this podcast. You can do that by going to lionsofliberty.com slash support for that lowest level of $5 you get access to all of our exclusive content, which we make available only to Pride members. We've had some some great uh, podcasts recently. I know Mark and Brian and Rico just did a live watch of the movie They Live. Uh, talking through that, there's been some conspiracy theory roundtables. We did a review of the top 100 influencers list that Newsmax did, and we tore that apart. So we're having a lot of fun with it, and the only way you can get access to it is by joining the Lions Pride at lionsofliberty.com slash support. That's all I have for today, guys. I really want to thank you all for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.